Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To kick the program off today, I want to talk about an issue with policing. Now, this is always controversial uh, when we talk about policing, when we talk about the number of officers on the street and the work that needs to be done. Uh, the head of Hamilton's police union says that staffing here in Hamilton at uh, police services is at, at what he calls a crisis level. Clint Twolin is the president of the Hamilton Police Association. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to explain. Clint, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Well, thanks for having me, Bill. This is a, a, not just a matter of math. This is a matter of, of, of how effective police can be when they're on the street. Talk to us about the concern that you've got and, and how this has evolved. Well, it, it's not a last-minute type of a thing. This has been uh, kind of brewing for some time now. Um, what we're seeing right now is that we're having difficulty as a service staffing the front line. And it's mostly the front line that I'm referring to, although right across the board, even with civilians, uh, we're very, very short-staffed. And uh, we've, we've kind of put it on the back burner over the years, and this has uh, led to a situation where uh, we're really having difficulty, in some cases, not even able to put enough staff, uh, particularly on the front line, on the streets, on any given shift. Now, what's the, what's the, show me and, and explain to our listeners exactly uh, where the standards are, because this was discussed and this was negotiated, wasn't it? Well, as far as standards go, the the issue um, that we deal with on a day-to-day basis is there's no specific standard that's, uh, you know, across the province. There's no number that is assigned to a particular area as far as how many police officers are required, you know, on a, on a given shift at a given time. So it's really, uh, it's independent to each one of the uh, police services themselves. So we, uh, we in Hamilton have actually negotiated into our collective agreement uh, not staffing numbers that we think are the very bare minimums that will provide the adequate and effective policing that's required. Are you meeting those standards? Not in every case, no. In fact, uh, we're finding more and more often... Uh, more officers are being called in on overtime just to meet those numbers, and we're finding uh, it's becoming uh, a little bit more common that um, those numbers aren't being met, that the officers aren't even um, responding to the requests for overtime. You know, Clint, as I was going over some of the data, it's a great piece by uh, Nicole O'Reilly and The Spectator that uh, outlines an awful lot of the concerns that you're raising here. Uh, I, I couldn't help but draw the analogy between uh, some of the conversations I've had with uh, uh, advanced care paramedics and, and their numbers and their shortages. And it's not just a matter of numbers. It's also, even if an officer is on duty, uh, the responsibilities that they have. And I know there's been some changes in provincial legislation that say, for instance, domestic disputes. Uh, you've got to do this, 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 and this. And, and basically, you're, you're off uh, the street for a period of time if you're involved in doing that kind of work and paperwork. Absolutely, and and we've seen this evolution over the years. Uh, the legislation has changed. Uh, the 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 needs uh, as far as our administrative side have increased uh, substantially. I mean, domestic uh, incidents are one example, but you look at the mental health issues uh, where uh, historically, if you look back fifteen twenty years ago, where one in twenty roughly calls were for mental health issues. Now we're sitting at about one in five or one in six. They're very time consuming and. The responsibilities of the officers have increased significantly. So those, you know, I, I, I certainly don't um, take issue with, with the service and upper management. The chief and Deputy Kinsella has certainly addressed it. We do talk on a regular basis about the numbers. And unfortunately, the, the, the problem lies in the fact that there's just not enough officers to go around. We've taken many steps to try to streamline and to tr- try to be more efficient be it uh, the case prep unit or MCERT or any of these uh, initiatives that we've taken in Hamilton to try to make things more streamlined and more efficient. 
there's still just not enough officers to, to do the day-to-day operations. Now, the example that uh, that we heard about, obviously, was uh, to fill in some of these gaps. What uh, Deputy Chief Consellas had to do is take some people away from some of the, uh, well, for lack of a better expression, special forces, I guess, uh, the teams that uh, that police services have done. And you've, you've already touched on a couple of them right now, Clint. Uh, what does that do to the efficacy? I mean, uh, if, if you've got fewer officers available in, in a situation like that, uh, can they respond in a timely manner and in an efficient manner? Well, the units that have been broken down are much more uh, preventative, and they're more involved in the investigative side. So what they do is they, their investigations take more time, they take uh, more resources. So when you pull them out of, uh, out of their units, what you're turning into is, an, is a reactive police service, uh, you know, where we're just sitting in cruisers waiting for the, the calls to come in, and that, there's no shortage of those, I can assure you of that. So What's happening is uh, we're not able to, when these units are being broken down, we're not able to, to conduct those more complex investigations, and we're not able to get at the heart of what causes uh, you know, crime in the city. So that, that's, that's my concern, and I'm sure it's the concern of the chief and the deputies as well. Well, how many times have we talked over the last couple of, I was going to say months, but really years, about uh, the increased gun violence and the drug trade, obviously, which uh, is probably one of the underlying reasons for a lot of the gun violence that's going on. Uh, I'd like to think that we have enough staff and police services to be able to look at this and, as you say, work in a proactive and preventative fashion. Well, and that's our goal. We don't want the crimes to happen. We want to prevent them. We want to take steps to make sure that the community's safe. Uh, but once again, uh, I, we're very sensitive as an association to budgetary concerns. Uh, don't get me wrong, we're not just stomping our feet. We're trying to educate the public as well to let them know the type of service they're going to get based on the staffing numbers that we have. Uh, we're, we, uh, I, I'm fully confident and I can say that we're one of the leanest, if not the leanest, police service in the country. When you look at not just our numbers, but also the types of uh, crime that we deal with, uh, the frequency, the number of calls, the number of mental health issues that we have in the city. We're doing the very best we can, but where, where we're getting now is we're seeing that uh, we're getting burnout with the officers. Officers are starting sick, just can't come in anymore. And uh, we're also seeing uh, officers saying, you know what, I'm going to have to take some time off work. I've just seen too much, and I've done too much over the last uh, period of time. And so that, too, is having a trickle-down effect. So what's what's the answer? I mean, we're in the middle of a municipal election right now, and I, I just going over some of the literature of the people that are running or re, you know running for re-election, whatever the case might be. About ninety-five percent of them every year, every election, Clint say, "Look, yeah, we have to do more for policing. We should put more officers on the street," and everybody applauds. But when push comes to shove, it, it doesn't seem to happen. To not to the degree I think that probably needs to happen. Is, is it a matter of money? Is it budgetary issues that are going on here? Because I, I get the, the sense that there's an awful lot of people that would like to say, you know, give them more. If they need more staff, give them more staff. Well, I think when it comes to an election uh, standpoint, I think those running for, for council, for the municipal uh, council and for the mayor as well, have to just take a step back and say, okay, what type of service do we want to give the community? Because the, the bottom line is, if you don't have the staffing, uh, we, we, we in Hamilton, as police officers and our civilians, have always made do. What we're seeing now is that there's a decline in the, uh, in the service that we're able to provide, not because the officers aren't doing their very best, it's just we can't do it. I have spoken to candidates uh, running for council who have said, you know, if they're door-to-door knocks, what they're hearing from citizens is, you know, I'd like to see a police officer in my community. I'd like to see one driving down the street. 
the problem is we don't have the, the, the staffing and the personnel to be able to do that. We're starting to become, and, and not even starting, we are a reactive police service right now. We're doing our best, but uh, it's going to take more officers to be able to provide that service. You mentioned that there's an ongoing dialogue with yourself and the chief and, and Deputy Chief Kinsella, who is obviously in charge of this particular aspect of police services. Uh, and, and I know that your relationship is, is cordial and that you guys are trying to work cooperatively on here. Uh, where, how do you find solutions for this? I mean, obviously this is a money problem to a certain extent, but at the same time, uh, when you use the term crisis, I mean, you know, it, it, it tells you that, listen, you know, we can't just stand around and twiddle our thumbs here and wait for this thing to get better. You're going to have to be proactive. Yeah, well, one of, the, one of the keys is obviously dialogue, and that's being able to speak to uh, the chief and the deputy, um, and also providing the support uh, for them, because um, like uh, the deputy said, we are in constant communication on this. They, uh, they have taken uh, steps to address our concerns. I think the biggest thing that um, needs to happen is it has to be a collaborative approach, and it's, a, it's an educational piece to the community as well, and getting feedback. If, if they're aware of where or what our status is as an organization, I think we'll get more public support. The dollars will come if, if, the, if members of the community understand exactly where we're at. So this is a matter of uh, one of the elements, anyway, of this has to be public information and public education then? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, it's easy for us to, as, you know, as an organization to stand there and say we're, we're doing our very best and, and put out crime stats or put out that type of information. I think the other, the other part of it is that the public needs to understand the, the complexity of our jobs and exactly what it takes to provide a certain level of service. And I think that gets lost in the conversation uh, quite often. Well, and again, you're right, and that comes down to public education as to understanding what's going on. I mean, you are proud, and I think should be proud, for instance, of the mental health initiatives that police services have undertaken over the last little while. But as you mentioned, uh, when officers are involved in that, and, and for instance, somebody has to end up going over to St. Joe's or whatever the case might be, uh, again, it seems very similar to what happens with uh, with paramedics, is that they have to wait there. And I mean, I've seen officers standing around in the hall waiting for, obviously, for intake in those situations. And that's uh, a situation where all of a sudden you've got two officers that aren't available right now because they're tied up with a client, and uh, that happens time and time again. Now, when it comes to paramedics, Clinton, you've heard the stories, of course, about the code zeros when there aren't enough units available if something should happen. Are you concerned or have you seen situations where those, uh, those ratios of officers available uh, on a particular shift are dangerously low to the point where you're concerned about whether or not you can actually provide the service they're supposed to provide? Well, I think there's more than, than one aspect to that, because when, when you talk about danger, I'm always concerned about officer safety, whether or not there's enough officers to make sure that uh, when they do their calls, that they're um, in a position where they can do it safely and to protect themselves. The second part of that is, and I, I think this is going to answer your question, are, are there times when the community is contacting the police and we're just not available to get there? That is happening. Uh, there, are t- there are the wait times um, without having the statistics in front of me. I, I'm, I'm talking anecdotally in a sense. Yeah. In that I'm getting feedback from the members who are saying, you know, uh, we worked last night and there were X number of incidents where the dispatcher was on the air asking for units to go to a priority call and they're just not available because there's just not enough officers there to do it. Um, I've, I've said it before to my members, you know, we're, we're one call away, one critical call away from a, from a catastrophe. Uh, and, and I'm not trying to be dramatic. I'm just saying that, you know, when you don't have enough people on the street and they're tied up doing calls for service and, and so on and so forth, doing their paperwork, you, you, 
we're one call away from having an incident where we're just not able to respond effectively. Well, I mean, we've seen incidences, of, and, and we don't know the numbers, obviously. I mean, you're, you're educating us right now about uh, some of the concerns uh, and some of the challenges that you're facing. But when we hear about some of the, the shootings or incidents of that nature that are going on, and obviously officers and, and units have to respond in situations, but if they're tied up doing something else, uh, you have to wonder about, well, the phrase you use was response time. And, and that's a constant complaint you're going to get from, from the public, isn't it, Clint? That, you know, we called 911, and gee, well, you know how long it took these guys to get here? Uh, now we're starting to get, I think, a, a better picture here as to maybe why it, it, didn't, uh, it didn't happen as quickly as some people would like it to happen. Yeah, and that, that, that is the case. And our communicators, they work really hard to try to, 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 to ensure that when you make a call to 911 that there's a police officer available. Um, but unfortunately, it's like it, it, it really is a, um, you know, a response to demand. And in Hamilton, we're in a different situation. We really are. Some of the, uh, you know, if you look at demographics, if you look at um, uh, different socioeconomic issues, uh, Hamilton's a different beast in comparison to uh, some of the people or some of the, um, the, the municipalities around us. And so, yeah, our, our, our members are trying their very best, but when there's just nobody available, there's just nobody available. And what we're seeing now is, uh, and there's, there's, there's not one simple answer to this. When you look at legislation, you're looking at new training, you're looking at different ways that now are tying up our officers. Um, all of these things are playing a role in why we're so short-staffed. And in response to that, uh, I can tell you historically, it was never a problem to get somebody to come in and do overtime. We are now at the point where officers are just saying, nope, I'm not even, I've, I've, I'm, I'm done. I just don't, I don't have the energy, and mentally and physically I can't do it anymore. I can't come in for these extra shifts. Well, you've got a, another challenge too, and that's geography. I mean, this is a you know a wonderful city in which we live, but I mean, it's the expanse of this city is is just remarkable, and you're trying to cover this whole thing. I mean, from you know the far reaches of Binbrook to the far reaches of Flamborough out in the other direction, uh, it's it's somewhat problematic. Getting from point A to point B does take time, and if you don't have enough units, uh, you've got a problem. Absolutely, um, you know, and fortunately, when we're when we're talking about Flamborough, Waterdown, Binbrook. You know the, the the volume of calls for service aren't that great in those areas. I mean, it does come and go, but uh, you know, in general, um, the, the the size of the city, uh, the the geographical you know issues that we deal with, um, that that always comes up, and I, I get a lot of feedback from our members uh, on that issue. But I'll I'll tell you that the, the biggest issue that we do have is is the sheer volume of calls and um, the administrative burdens that come with with those calls i mean it, the members are just getting to the point where they're saying you know what i just can't you know i can't go to another fatality i can't go to another dead body call i can't go i've had enough and it's it's reflective of their their need to to take a step back and take time off and be able to um deal with uh, those those experiences on their own is it fair to say that the, that you and, and the chief are, and the deputy chief are on the same page on this issue yeah, I think so. I, I do think so. And I'm anything that I can do to support them um, achieving the goal. And, and again, Bill, I don't, I don't look at this as just let's throw money at it. We as an organization have done uh, an awful lot to try to mitigate, um, you know, costs and to look at efficiencies. We're now at that peak. We just can't do any more. And to me, and the feedback that I'm getting from my members is it's time to start hiring some more people putting them on the road, and giving the service that, uh, that we have always given, uh, without, without, not, not to the detriment uh, of our members. 
Well, the election is just a couple of weeks away, uh, and I know that usually uh, they start the budget process for the following year uh, shortly after uh, everybody gets sworn in. It's going to be an interesting couple of meetings when that happens, and uh, Clint, I'm sure you'll be there, and so will the chief and deputy chief. That, listen, I appreciate the time today, though. Thanks so much for uh, bringing this issue front side to us here and give us an explanation. Well, thanks for having me, Bill. Take care. Clint Twolan, of course, president of the Hamilton Police Association. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are just a couple of weeks away from a municipal election, and, uh, of course, you're starting to get the flyers now. You, the signs have been there for some time now, but uh, the the commercials, etc. people looking for your votes. That's what it comes down to. And you might even have had a candidate or two knocking on your door to, to try to get you to vote for them. Uh, and if you live in certain parts of the city, you're going to hear a consistent theme, and that is us versus them. And and from some of the candidates, granted, not all of them. And it, it really stems from this idea about, you know, there's a rural-urban split in this city. Is it real? I Well, I've got my thoughts on this, but I want to bring Peter Grafe into the conversation. He's a professor of political science at McMaster University uh, here in Hamilton. Peter, great you could join us today. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Let's talk, let's talk a little bit about this. I know you were quoted in, in the spec article about this today. Uh, and because I for this goes back to regional government, for, let alone the amalgamated government, and they they always seem to have this rural urban split. It was us versus them. Is is there something real going on here? Uh, I mean, yeah, certainly there's divisions on uh, Hamilton City Council, but maybe we gum together, uh, you know, different orders of things and call them all the same thing. So I mean, there's certainly some ongoing divisions between the uh, amalgamated communities and the old city of Hamilton, particularly around, uh, you know, the question of area rating and, uh, you know, related to that then uh, funding for transit. But, I mean, you know, that's really the, the, the crux of the, the matter there. I think on top of that, uh, there's maybe more of a uh, urban-suburban split. And so in that, you have the, the mountain uh, really allied in many ways with the amalgamated communities with a particular vision of developing Hamilton as we have for the past uh, 60 or 70 years, really about building out the the frontier to the suburbs as far as, you know, building in new suburbs and seeing that as a way forward versus maybe more of an urban vision uh, that is represented more often by the downtown councillors with the idea that our economic progress is going to come by uh, strengthening economic activity in the core of the city. And your point's well taken. As you mentioned, in 2000, when the city was amalgamated, we started this this whole journey together. Some of us kicking and screaming were brought into the to the partnership. But uh, Benbrook was a much different looking area. So was Flamborough, for that matter. I mean, Waterdown has experienced incredible growth over the last 15 to 18 years. So has Benbrook. Anybody who was there then and has left and comes back today wouldn't recognize those areas. There's a lot bigger urban component in those areas, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, and, you know, and then you go into Stony Creek and out, you know, by Fruitland Road and so on. I mean, there's uh, just a huge addition uh, of newcomers to the city. So, I mean, the the banging of the drum, drum around amalgamation uh, does become a bit odd because in, in many of those uh, those communities, the people who are living there now weren't living there in 2000 and don't have any memory of that. And, and so we have politicians, presumably, who have found it uh, useful to bang that drum. Now, there may be ways in which the people who live there feel that uh, the city isn't working for them, uh, and that may be based a bit on, you know, where they live and, and how the city responds to their needs. But uh, there's, uh, the framing it around uh, amalgamation in particular, or this kind of old city, new city split, I think uh, hides what are the, the sort of more crucial issues about how people are living and certainly how people live on uh, the south end of Hamilton Mountain in the old city of Hamilton and how they live in many parts of 
Ancaster, Stony Creek, Dundas, uh, Binbrook, Waterdown. Uh, it's actually pretty similar-looking communities and similar concerns. But you're always going to get that attitude, I guess, depending on, on the area that you live, aren't you, Peter? I mean, there was some talk 15, 20, 25 years ago of actually, you know, Hamilton Mountain splitting from this is before the amalgamation, obviously. Uh, different mindsets, different kinds of attitudes, and in some cases, different challenges, et cetera, with some of the older neighborhoods in the downtown core as opposed to some of the other ones. And you're right, though, there does seem to be an affinity now with uh, people on the South Mountain, uh, still the old city of Hamilton, but the South Mountain, uh, with the people of Binbrook and, and Ancaster, more so than with the people maybe in downtown. Yeah, so I mean, certainly where people live is important, although also the, the ways our politicians talk about our strategies are also important. Uh, I mean, it's it's not clear to me, you know, why on a number of questions of uh, urban development, we see such pushback by the, you know, the suburban councillors when, you know, ultimately the city's been told by the province that we need a much denser form of development uh, you would think that given the opposition of many people in certain areas to see that density in their neighborhoods, <laughs> that to see it downtown would be a winner and that they'd want to, to build that up. But, you know, in many cases, uh, there's a kind of knee-jerk reaction against uh, the building of some of those urban amenities. So, I mean, part of it, too, is that the stories that our, our councillors tell us. And if, if if we as citizens, and this is across the city, uh, generally don't pay much attention to municipal politics, you know, it allows the politicians who are there to, rather than take responsibility for the city they've built over the past 10, 15, 20 years, in the case of many of these councillors who've been sitting there that length of time, rather than taking responsibility for the city they've built, uh, they keep running about how, you know, the rest of the city is somehow, you know, shortchanging their particular ward and a kind of form of ward nationalism, uh, which is probably useful for their re-election, but probably isn't serving their citizens who have questions about, well, you know, why aren't there good... Uh, pedestrian amenities where I'm living, uh, how come, you know, we're adding uh, more subdivisions which are crowding our streets. And so, uh, you know, we do on occasion see the election of councillors uh, from those wards who have different ideas about what the problems are and, and provide a, a slightly different vision of the city. That's one of the oldest political tricks in the book, though, isn't it, Peter? You know, you're in trouble, these guys are going to rip you off, but I will protect you if you elect me. Yeah, and I mean, so we can we can uh, say it's the oldest trick in the book. It's really shame on us, in a yeah. way, right? As citizens, if we don't follow municipal politics, then we're not really in a position to ask the tough questions. And I mean, if we think of some of the uh, unhappiness in this election about the change in the ward structure, which is somehow sold as being forced down the throats of people in parts of the city. But in many ways, it was the existing councillors who brought us to that conclusion by you know, refusing to adopt a 16-ward structure that would have preserved a rural seat or refusing to show uh, flexibility in front of the OMB where you know, they could have preserved a, a rural seat, but it, it would have meant breaking up Ancaster and disturbing the kind of existing ward structure. Uh, so again, you know, that gets po- painted as you know, some sort of nefarious force against the old amalgamated communities, but in other ways, there's an important part of responsibility that sits on the incumbent councillors. It's part of the human psyche, though, isn't it, Peter? If you're you're upset about something, whether it's taxes, garbage collection, snow clearing, I mean, pick one, uh, you want to blame somebody, right? (laughs) And and, and the easy target, obviously, is City Hall, and just say, you know, it was never like this before, it's that city, it's that amalgamation, those guys in the city are messing us around. Yeah. Uh, and again, I think uh, it's sort of shame on us as as uh, as citizens, right? If we want to move beyond a kind of a knee-jerk take on it and actually say that there's you know serious issues facing us as a community and the, the way we've been going hasn't been working, how could we do it differently? 
you know, we would like to see elections where there was a bit more competition in those wards uh, with a richer set of ideas about how we could live better together. Um, but again, if if we come in without really any understanding of the decisions that have been made, or, or we're not that invested in actually learning about the people who are running, uh, certainly it makes that uh, ward nationalism a really effective strategy to uh, promote incumbency. Has the city, and by that I mean both the administration and the elected officials, done a, a good enough job of trying to assuage some of those concerns, even if they are not realistic, uh, you know, to, 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 to try to bring everybody into the, the fold and uh, under one tent? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say that there's been attempts over the past, uh, you know, 20 years, and I think the way a city council works on a day-to-day basis, they do a reasonable job of of trying to uh, balance those things off. Uh, then, of course, once people are away from the council table, uh, you know, they want to say other things for their own their own interests. Uh, I mean, I do think that as a city as a whole, and this is probably not something that we can put on city council or even the city itself, uh, you know, that we have a lot of people making claims about how they're net contributors to the city and somehow people in the rest of the city are, are uh, sort of leeching off us. And, I mean, you know, the, the urban people say that, <laughs> that this dense urban uh, development is good for the city and the sprawl is costly and people in the suburbs have a kind of alternative view that some other paying ever higher property taxes so it must be that you know the downtown that is uh, sort of leeching off the city uh, I mean we could use uh, probably a better civic conversation about well what are the the costs and consequences of different kinds of development we have in the city uh, so that we wouldn't have the the same kind of you know baiting of other parts of the city and maybe come up with a strategy that would be beneficial for all of us. Well, a lot of that's misinformation, too, I, you know, when it comes to situations like this. And, you know, the tax increases that did occur, and I guess to a certain extent are still occurring, uh, they always want to blame on City Hall, not standing the fact that, you know, the, one of the things that really I think was a key factor in that was the current value assessment that was brought in by the provincial government. Uh, which changed the whole way that we paid property taxes, and that had nothing to do with the city. We were, they were victims of that just as much as anybody else was. Yet you, you've got to blame somebody, and since you're paying the taxes to the city hall, it must be their fault. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think we also see with cities, you know, such as Mississauga, who have a much stronger uh, now corporate tax base than we have in Hamilton, uh, similar tax pressures, uh, which is really based off a particular built form that uh, you build subdivisions and collect uh, the. Uh, development charges when they're built, but, you know, 40, 50 years later when you have to do, you know, significant uh, renovations to the infrastructure and the sewers and so forth, uh, uh, you know, that's a pretty big hit on the property uh, tax base. I mean, if you just think about what it costs to keep the road in front of your house paved so many years, uh, you'd be surprised how many years of your property taxes just go to that. So I think part of it, too, is that, uh, you know, we haven't really come face to face with what the real cost is on a life cycle basis of our communities. And so, yeah, we, we complain about rising property taxes, but some of that is based on the fact that we were paying artificially low ones uh, for the kind of development we have, uh, you know, for the past 25, 30 years. And, and as much as I like, we can complain about current value assessment, I know this is an 18-year-old policy, but, I mean, we're still having an, imp- it's still having an impact on us. That to, go, to your point, though, Peter, I think before that, uh, property taxes were based on 1973 assessments, and that was around 1995 at the time, and it, it was unrealistic. Uh, they may have gone way too far too soon, and, and obviously we felt the impact on that. But but you're right. I mean, people there's, there's always that mindset, I guess, of people saying, look, it, it was great 20 years ago. Why can't we just have it the way it is 20 years ago? And I, I don't know if there's any community that's the same as it was 20 years ago. We all evolved, don't we? Yeah, well, I mean, Hamilton is a much bigger place than it was 20 years ago. Uh, but again, I mean, I think people... 
you know, feel pinched. And so they want, you know, both the cake and to eat it. And so they want to have low taxes because the property tax is a very visible tax that they have to pay. Uh, at the same time, you know, when you have bad roads in the spring, you have people saying, I don't, you know, take all the money and spend it on resurfacing the roads. Uh, you know, which is, I think, an indication that a lot of the things that the city does in terms of the core infrastructure of roads and water uh, is really significant to our, the enjoyment of our quality of life, to say nothing of things of parks and rec centers. Uh, and so, in a way, we value the services that are there, and yet uh, we feel the pinch of paying for them. And so, yeah, there's a kind of, uh, I think, a typical irrationality uh, when it comes to our discussion of, of property tax. There was a discussion going on and, and a mindset by some people back when amalgamation occurred, Peter, as, as you recall, that said, look, at, you know, give these people 10, 15 years and everything will fine. Everything, it's inflammatory now, but things will cool down. Are you surprised that 18 years later we're still having this conversation? Uh, no, because I, I think our councillors have not held themselves to a higher standard. I mean, because they, they realize that playing these games is politically uh, good for them uh, individually, and, and they're not really looking at the collective cost. And, I mean, we can also think of, you know, a number of councillors, you know, it's not just from the amalgamated cities who, when something comes to council, will spend, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes saying why it's the worst thing ever and then end up voting for it. Um, so, you know, there's a number of ways in which, because we don't watch city council closely, uh, they can ga- engage in behaviors that really aren't serving uh, finding a way to bring the city together and to develop a kind of a longer-term idea of what's good for the city. So even when we end up doing things, it's as if everybody hates the fact that we're doing them rather than developing a more positive vision of, of projects we can do together. Yeah, I think one of the factors here might as well be as uh, there was a time when information the city wanted to disseminate to the public would be done through City Hall. There was a public relations department, that sort of thing. That's been cut back, if not eliminated altogether, and most of the information we get now is through those councillors, through the budgets that they have, and they send out the material, and obviously what we're reading is through the prism of of what they want us to see. So, I mean, there's there's a bit of a manipulation that goes on here when it comes to the dissemination of information. Well, and I mean, as you know, in the old days, when you were down at City Hall with a CHML microphone, uh, there were a lot of other microphones from radio stations around the city yep. and from other news sources. And now there's about th- you know, three, maybe four uh, journalists who are regularly covering City Hall in the city. And that, I think, you know, also makes a difference if people aren't, uh, you know, aren't reading the city's newspaper, if they aren't uh, getting that kind of news on most of the city's radio stations, then... Yeah, uh, we do really leave it up to the councillors to to set the narrative, uh, and we don't have a lot of alternative ways to kind of question: Are they are they actually acting in the city's interest? Are things really that divided? In fact, you know, it sounds like uh, you're in agreement with uh, these downtown councillors on a whole pile of issues. So, uh, you know, why are you ripping your shirt about the sort of uh, urban uh, rural? So, I mean, I think there's a number of ways in which we're, we're, you know, people aren't that well informed and the, the current media landscape isn't making it easier for them to follow what's happening at City Hall. I mean, in fairness, there were some and have been some rural councillors who have, I think, a better vision, a bigger vision, a, a more encompassing vision, and have tried to do that. I, I don't want to paint everybody with the same brush and say they're all being contrary just for the sake of getting reelected. Uh, I don't. I, I guess they've met with various levels of success in doing that, but uh, I, maybe it does come down to the quality of the people that are around that table that, after this next election. Yeah, I mean, certainly uh, who you choose makes a difference, uh, and I mean, I think we've seen uh, different kinds of representation of uh, uh, rural, but particularly suburban issues from the amalgamated communities over you know that 15 years. There hasn't been a lot of turnover. 
But in cases where there has been, I think we've seen quite different ways of representing that interest. Sometimes it's been improvement in my view, sometimes it's a step backwards. But yeah, the people you choose makes a difference. I mean, there isn't a uh, rural or a suburban or a urban way of thinking about the development of the city. Uh, you know, there's different ways of, of thinking about the interests of the people who live in, in those areas. And, and uh, you know, there's many things that also unite around questions like, you know, road safety, safety for our kids, things like that. And so the manner in which councillors actually express that is important. And so our choice, you know, in what, three weeks' time becomes really crucial about the direction we go. Uh, and the extent to which, you know, there will always be tensions as people live in different kinds of communities and have different interests. But do we have politicians who try and find win-win or do we find ones that are trying to uh, accentuate the division because it's in their electoral interest? There are two issues, I guess, that are, are possibly and, and tentatively going to maybe even make this a, a wider gap. And, and you touched on one of them, we being transit, and the other one, I guess, would be area rating. Uh, which if, in fact, you've got a councillor or a bunch of councillors that have that mindset of us versus them, uh, that's the issue that they're going to grab onto because, I mean, you can really uh, look at the potential for a lot of, uh, of acrimony when it comes to those two issues. I know that area rating was something they put in to try to, to, to ease some of the burden on some of the rural councillors, but, I mean, there seems to be a move afoot now to do something about that, maybe even eliminate it, and uh, that's, uh, that's not going to go well. Uh, probably not, although, again, I mean, if our councillors had been looking for the win-win over the past 10 years, we'd probably be further along on that, because, uh, you know, many of the councillors who would like to maintain area rating nevertheless sit at the council table and, you know, complain that they aren't getting bus service in their community. But then when, you know, the idea is, okay, maybe we could add bus service to your community, they say they don't want it because <laughs> with the area rating, it's yeah. going to increase the taxes. And so, you know, there's a way in which we get uh, stuck in what kind of lose-loses, uh, you know, when instead we could have said, well, here's a bigger question. How do we improve uh, transit in these communities and do that as part of shifts in area ratings so that you know, people, when they pay more tax, actually see kind of a clear benefit in terms of the services they receive? Well, uh, as you mentioned, this may all change after the election in three weeks, or it may not. Uh, <laughs> we'll just have to wait and see. Peter, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. You're welcome. Take care. Peter Grape, uh, political science professor from uh, McMaster University. And yeah, you do have a say in this. And, and I'm not, as I said, trying to paint everybody with the same brush. I mean, there are some people that are trying to find a way to make this work. And uh, some of them are on city council and they're trying to do that as well. But uh, we do, I guess, as, as voters, I mean, get a little frustrated. And, you know, you want to point the finger of blame at somebody. And it's easy to point it at City Hall. But oftentimes it's just a matter of, well, who's trying to work to make everything work here? Or are you just trying to look at your own constituency and see if you can just, you know, better your own position vis-a-vis getting reelected? Uh, just ask some questions if somebody had, does actually start knocking on your door and looking for your vote. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. All eyes are going to be on Washington. Uh, the fate of Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh could be determined today as senators are uh, pouring over the FBI investigation that was ordered. And you all know the setup for this, of course, that it was finally, uh, the senators uh, last week finally decided, yes, they were going to allow the FBI to uh, investigate some of the concerns raised by Dr. Ford and her testimony before that committee. Uh, now, the report is out. There's a lot of controversy around the report, as you might have expected. And uh, the big question is, what are the ramifications? and What kind of a impact, if any, is it going to have on the nomination process for Brett Kavanaugh? Joining us to talk about this is Claire Finkelstein, Algernon Biller Professor of Law and Professor of Philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Claire, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me, Bill. You've heard some of the controversy on this already. The fact that only nine people apparently were interviewed by the FBI. 
Uh, a lot of folks wanted a much broader scope and maybe more intense investigation. What are your thoughts on this? Well, in fact, the White House kept very tight control over this, and most notably, the two people who were not interviewed were Brett Kavanaugh and Dr. Ford. Uh, that's very problematic with regard to the completeness of the interview, and it made it really impossible for the FBI to give any opinions about whether or not Brett Kavanaugh was telling the truth. Since the issue of perjury in his testimony has become a central one, and some Democrats are saying even if he is confirmed, they may continue to pursue that issue uh, towards eventually impeaching him. It's something that the FBI surely should have gotten to the bottom of in order to, at the very least, uh, lay to rest any concerns on that score if, he, if the Republicans did insist on going forward. Which conflicts, by the way, with, with what we thought was going to happen. And even a comment from uh, President Trump a couple of days ago uh, during one of his media scrums on the lawn there at the White House where he simply said, look, they can talk to whoever they want. Uh, you know, that's, that's their job. Apparently not. We're told now that they had to limit their, their discussions uh, to the sexual misconduct allegations and nothing else. And now, again, that's speculative at this stage, but it seems to be a consensus. Well, it does appear that when Donald Trump made those remarks, he was not telling the truth about the direction that the White House was giving the FBI about the permissible scope of their investigation. It's not the FBI that decided not to do a complete investigation. It's the White House. Uh, so, in fact, the White House instructions contradicted what Donald Trump was saying publicly. Uh, it may be that he would have been open to a more lengthy process. There's some reason to think from his initial remarks when he said it can take all the time in the world, we have all the uh, tremendous amounts of time, he said, that he might not have been averse to a more lengthy investigation. Why the pivot? Uh, it's a sidebar issue, but I still think very germane to, to the overall concern here. Uh, by the president, Claire, uh, uh, you know, five days ago, he said that uh, he thought Dr. Ford was a very credible witness. And uh, uh, and then, of course, we know the, uh, of course, the performance the other day where he was mocking her, much to the delight of the crowd there. Uh, totally a different attitude and a different approach to this. Well, that's true. And one has to wonder whether or not he didn't come under a fair bit of pressure after he made those remarks about tremendous amount of time from Mitch McConnell and Republicans in the Senate. Uh, I doubt that he wants to do anything that would impede the nomination, of course. He wants to see Kavanaugh go through, but there is a kind of side benefit to him because all of this upset around the nomination of Kavanaugh takes some of the heat off him, some of the attention away from the Mueller probe. So I, I can only speculate <clears throat> that it might not have been totally averse to him to have controversy directed elsewhere. However, in the end, of course, he is strategizing with Republicans in the Senate to get this nomination to go through, and they may have said that taking tremendous amounts of time is not their best game. The implications of this. Now, again, the story and, and the, the release we got from the White House at 2.30 in the morning, by the way, when this was released, that's rather odd. Uh, but it said that, uh, to their, in their opinion anyway, that there was no corroboration of uh, the allegations uh, about sexual misconduct against uh, Kavanaugh. And that's, that's it. Now, we haven't seen the, the text of this, obviously, but that's the stuff that has leaked out so far. Uh, does, does that give those that were sitting on the fence now pause to simply say, okay, I'm back on side and with the, uh, with the endorsement and with give, giving Kavanaugh the seat? It may. We don't know the scope of that suggestion. For example, they may say we could not corroborate the attack on Dr. Ford, um, 
But here are some other things we found. So uh, we don't know the scope of that disclaimer. They may also say that the reason we couldn't uh, corroborate these claims is that we didn't have enough time and we didn't have access to all the witnesses. Uh, There were reports of a number of witnesses that wanted to come forward and speak to the FBI that couldn't actually get through. Jane Mayer was very forceful on that point, saying witnesses she had spoken to uh, were not actually able to speak to the FBI. So my guess is that the report will say that uh, the investigation was incomplete. It's hard to know how the several swing voters on the Senate, on whom all eyes are focused, such as Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, Joe Manchin, and Jeff Flake, will react in the face of an investigation that is incomplete. Well, and again, yeah, I guess words matter here as to how they're actually going to phrase that. I mean, if it says that we found no corroboration, period, end of sentence, but if they uh, go further and suggest, well, because we didn't have as much time. And and staffing is another issue, too, because I was under the impression uh, from the way the president described this, and, you know, we have to take his words, I guess, with a grain of salt, though, Claire, is that, look, they can take whatever resources they want. If they want to put 200 people on this and get this done, that's fine, too. Uh, it's starting to sound now as if this was not just a very uh, limited in scope, but also possibly in staffing as to who was available to actually talk to these people. Well, that's probably true. And we just don't know what the internal orders were from the White House to the FBI, regardless of what Donald Trump was saying. That's something that may get probed uh, hereafter. And I have a feeling that this issue, even if he is confirmed as early as uh, Friday or Saturday, the issue may not go away because it may continue to be pursued. Uh, Lindsey Graham has said that he may call for an investigation into the whole process and into uh, Diane Feinstein's handling of the matter. So I have a feeling that each side is going to be continuing to call for investigations into the other around this contentious appointment. Is Lindsey Graham auditioning for the uh, job that uh, <laughs> is probably going to be vacant right after the election? That up Jeff Sessions? It's very hard to tell. His behavior has been surprisingly aggressive on this. Uh, He says publicly that he sees himself as carrying on the tradition of John McCain, but he certainly doesn't behave like it. He's been extremely intemperate and aggressive uh, and attacking of uh, Dr. Ford. Uh, so it's um, one can only speculate that he really sees his political bread as buttered on that side. Well, there was a certain consistency, though, wasn't there, to, to his performance that last Thursday uh, and also Kavanaugh's performance that last Thursday. Uh, they were singing off the same song sheet. It was all about outrage and, and reaching out and, and lashing out at, at just about every one of their political enemies. That's right. And in fact, uh, it does seem as though it may have been a somewhat uh, orchestrated approach to take the conspiracy theme that Donald Trump uh, has often pointed to, the kind of dark state and they're out to get me and, uh, and, and to ring that bell loud and clear because somehow they have figured out that really resonates with their base. Uh, and they are playing to the same base. Uh, There is, of course, a new problem now, which is that having rung that partisan bell so loudly and clearly, Judge Kavanaugh is now seen as, by many, uh, especially in the profession, as uh, too partisan to sit on the Supreme Court. And there were already concerns about that when he was nominated for the circuit court in 2006. 
Well, and let's talk about that, because I, I, I'm surprised there hasn't been more discussion about that. Uh, to go back again to his rant, uh, where he blamed uh, the Democratic Party, he blamed the Clintons, and, and just about anybody else. He had a long list of folks there. Uh, th- isn't there supposed to be some sense of impartiality when you sit on the court? I mean, we know there are conservatives, and, and we know that there are left-leaning members of the court. We get that, but you expect partisan political attacks from the people on the committee. That's what senators do. But for the nominee to actually lash out like that at, at a political party and at individuals, uh, is 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 that is that Supreme Court style? I mean, is that is that? Does, I would think that that would make some of the senators question his 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 credibility. I guess when it comes to that that, that sort of thing and his impartiality. Well, that's right. And Jeff Flake, uh, in fact, said very clearly that he was concerned about his the degree of vitriol in his remarks and how extremely partisan his remarks were. It's hard to imagine that a litigant who was tapping into any political issue for any reason where a case touched on some political issue would get a fair shake from this justice. We also, um, it's worth pointing out that we have as close to a controlled experiment with uh, this nomination as one could have because we had a test case on the conspiracy theory uh, and nominations to the Supreme Court, which which was Neil Gorsuch, who had precisely the same background, uh, even came from Georgetown Prep, and came from the same elite world, and had the same very, very conservative politics, and was nominated by the same president only a short while ago. And there was none of this furor, none of this anger and controversy around his nomination. And that really puts the lie to Brett Kavanaugh's conspiracy theory about his nomination and and getting back at Republicans for uh, the 2016 election. Claire, there's been a lot of feedback. I, I know that uh, one of the lawyers associations in the United States has uh, suggested uh, that Kavanaugh should uh, withdraw from this nomination. This morning, a, a group of uh, Christian churches, uh, uh, an amalgamation of them, have issued a joint statement suggesting that Kavanaugh is not worthy of the, the position on the Supreme Court. Do those sorts of things have any influence at all on, on the senators as they make their decision, either tomorrow or Saturday? Or is this just politics that they're going to play? That's an excellent question that you raise. Uh, the American Bar Association, whose endorsement Brett Kavanaugh himself cited in his testimony, uh, has suspended its uh, endorsement of him. Uh, they endorsed him with hesitation in 2006, and again now, uh, but then when these allegations were raised, uh, suspended their endorsement of him. Uh, and I think I do think people listen to the American Bar Association. There's also a letter circulating that um, over a thousand law professors have signed, objecting to the appointment on temperament grounds, on character grounds, regardless of what you think of the allegations. And they do think that those temperament concerns now may be impacting those senators, even who have not made up their minds about the allegations. Um, but are concerned by the display uh, in last Thursday's hearings. This one part of this, and, and again, the fact that they apparently have been told to focus only on the uh, the sexual misconduct allegations, and and that's I guess what the gist of this report's going to be. But isn't the greater issue here, Claire, uh, a matter of credibility on behalf of Kavanaugh? I mean, there seems to be more and more people. I know obviously others have come forward about sexual allegations against Kavanaugh, but uh, probably even a greater number that said, "Look at, I knew him. He's lying." 
uh, he lied under oath. And I would think that if that is, is the case, I mean, that immediately would disqualify him. Well, it's hard to decide which is the greater issue and which the lesser. There's so many problems here. But um, I do think credibility is a, a very serious issue. It does appear that he was not truthful about the extent of his drinking. That certainly is coming through loud and clear. Uh, he presented himself as just liking beer, drinking a lot of beer, and still liking beer. But in fact, uh, other people who knew him in college are saying that, in fact, he drank a lot more than beer and that he was often very drunk. He claims that he never passed out. Uh, and there are those who will say that's not true. Uh, so it appears that he lied about that. It appears that he may very well have lied about his involvement in the U.S. torture program when he was staff secretary. He was staff secretary from 2003 to 2006, which was the height of that program. Uh, and as staff secretary, he would have been exposed to a lot of documents uh, and a lot of information relating to that program. It's quite impossible that he would not have known about it. Uh, yet we don't have the records that would allow us to know what his involvement might have been. Uh, but there are concerns that he may have perjured himself there. Uh, and then, of course, there were very serious concerns that he perjured himself with regard to these various allegations uh, by different women and his uh, relationship with women and his treatment of them. So I think those concerns will continue to resonate and if he is confirmed to the Supreme Court, will really impair him from functioning as a justice at this point, uh, given the extreme controversy surrounding this nomination. Well, to do with sexual allegations, obviously to do with his uh, his hatred for the the Democratic Party and some of the members of that, uh, you've got to wonder how many of these cases is he going to recuse himself from if he actually does get on the bench. Well, that's right, except that uh, there is an indication that he has no intention of recusing himself. He's been asked that many times, and he has not said that he would recuse himself. Uh, I wrote an op-ed over the summer saying that he should recuse himself from any uh, case involving executive authority because there's a concern that Trump is engaged in self-dealing here by nominating someone who has written articles saying that the president has the right to fire a special counsel at will Trump may be orchestrating his own ability to get out of jail free, as it were, by putting someone on the bench who he knows would rule in his favor if he tries to fire Rod Rosenstein or uh, Robert Mueller. So uh, many people have called for him to recuse himself on various matters. And now there's a concern that to do things properly, he'd have to recuse himself on so many matters that actually he wouldn't be a functional justice. Well, the uh, ball's in the court of the Senate at this point. We'll see how this pans out over the next couple of days. Claire, thanks as always. I really appreciate the time today. Thanks for having me. Take care. Claire Fickelstein from the University of Pennsylvania Law School. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.